All right, good morning, everybody. This morning we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 9, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, Nehemiah 9. And we'll pray and we'll, we'll begin here. Lord, we thank you for um, the singing we've had together as we sung your praises and talked about how great you are and what you've done for us, what you will do for us, the promises you've made, and our faith in the fact that you will fulfill all of those promises. We want to follow with the reading of your word, the understanding of your word, uh, the applying of your word to our lives, and, and just uh, to draw closer to you now through your word. And so um, we are open to your Holy Spirit, leading and guiding us into all truth. Um, help us to accept that truth so that that truth can set us free. In Jesus' name, amen. That's really the progression of things. Is uh, On campus, they still have, and they haven't removed it yet, but imagine it's coming. Um, but the truth will set you fee- free. That's a quote from Martin Luther, but Martin Luther actually quoted it from um, the Bible. So the point of the Holy Spirit coming into our lives, into this world, is to lead and guide us into all truth. The truth then is there for us to either accept or reject, but if accepted, it can set us free from our sins. If it's rejected, then it won't, we'll remain in bondage. And in this chapter 9 of Nehemiah, as the people have wept openly and bitterly about the condition of their heart and the, their relationship with God, and it's, it's, uh, has failed, and yet the priests were encouraging the people to, to be excited that Although they recognize this, that's the first step towards being restored and being made whole again with God, and to celebrate the fact that God is still with them and has brought them back into the land, and that the relationship with God is salvageable, you know? It's manageable. It is, it's not lost. It's not gone. It's not something you have to mourn over. The relationship is still there. It's broken for sure. It's got some damage to it, but God has not left them or forsaken them. And that's worthy of celebration. And so they did. They celebrated. So this is the next step in chapter 9. I think maybe it's too strong of a statement to say that chapter 9 really sums up water baptism. It might be a little bit much. But this event, this chapter 9, needs to take place in everybody's life at one point or another. At some point, you have to have that moment with God whether it's ceremonial in the sense that you make it very formal or it's you lying on your back in the middle of the night broken before God and you have this conversation with him, maybe not as wordy, but still as complete and thorough, where you acknowledge where you are and you acknowledge where he is. You acknowledge what kind of person you are versus what kind of God he is. And you acknowledge the fact that he loves you and has grace for you, and has mercy for you, and has never left you over you begin to praise him for what he's done for someone who is undeserving, like yourself. And that is a wonderful moment in a person's life. Everybody needs that time. Everybody needs that moment. Sometimes it happens when you're born again, when you accept Christ on a personal level as your Lord and Savior, and you have that time with him. And you just say out loud or you say in your heart to him, I see it. I see all of it. I know exactly. My eyes are wide open now to my condition, to who you are, and what needs to take place next. Sometimes that happens periodically. As I was reading through this and studying for this this morning, I got to thinking about um, 
how Peter, when they were washing the disciples' feet, and he says, don't, don't just, if, if this is for our good, then don't just wash our feet, wash my whole body. He says, you don't need to have your whole body washed. That's already happened. We just need to have a periodic foot washing kind of thing. And so although this big event takes place maybe once in our lifetime, we have that periodic foot washing that needs to take place, needs to happen. And so you'll have maybe smaller moments like this where I have been walking with you, but I haven't been walking very closely with you lately, and I need to get back to you. Now, it says in verse 1, on the 24th day, of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth, with dust on their heads. Then those of Israel or Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one fourth of the day, and for another fourth they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. Now, they're doing this as a group. They're doing this as an entire nation together. Um, I think that's the first thing to notice here. It's maybe not acknowledged or maybe magnified in God's word, but they're coming together. And there's something about that when there's a group of people that have decided to come together and have this moment with God. This morning, perhaps, we're doing that. We've all taken the time to come and either hear or get or receive. Some are in a darker place than they've ever been before. Some are in a lighter place, but... We're all here together knowing that we all need to draw close to God, either as maintenance, just a continued worship of the Lord in our lives, or in desperation. This is it. We need help. And they're doing this together as a a family, understanding it. And then there's accountability for that. It's just automatic. We don't have to set up. They they didn't hold hands and get get your spiritual buddy partner together, you know, and make sure that they don't get lost in the museum kind of thing. It's not like that. It's the whole society in general, in all their tents, in in wherever they're living, in all their homes and in the city, have acknowledged that this is how we're going to live. And it's very obvious when you're not living that way. There's a little peer pressure there. It's not okay to walk out and sin like that. You're going to get eyeballed a little bit, you know, a little raised eyebrow. Like, what are you doing? You know, you know, we don't do that here kind of thing. Now, you hate for that to be the policeman you would hope that the Holy Spirit is the policeman of each person's heart, the person that brings conviction to them. But sometimes it does help to have a brother and say, what did you just say? Nothing. That just kind of slipped out. And I've had many of those people in my lives, and I'm sure you have too, when you first got saved. And um, my language need to be cleared up. Oh, I've, I got this letter, and I've, I think I threatened to bring it a couple times when I first got saved. And I wrote to my parents that I thought I might be a pastor. And in throughout that letter of talking to them about my great spiritual awakening, which it was, I mean, no doubt about it. I mean, I was born again. And yet it's laced with these four-letter words that only a Marine would, you know, even blush at kind of thing. And for my parents to read that going, he's done lost his mind, you know. I understand that. But that's where I was. I was absolutely born again, but boy, I had a lot of adjectives that I don't use anymore mixed in with that. And I had a lot of brothers in the Lord that would come alongside and say, what did you just say? I said, God is blank and awesome. I'm like, no, those don't go together, you know? Oh, oh, you know? And that raised eyebrow helped me, you know? Oh, oh yeah, 
I mean, it wasn't always the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it was the Holy Spirit and my friends saying, no, we don't say that. Oh, okay. It helps when the whole group comes together, when the whole family comes together, the whole nation comes together. And it, it's like that. There's a family. Whether anybody else in the world is doing it, like David said, as for me in my house, I'll serve the Lord. And so there's a raised eyebrow in the home, maybe. And some accountability in the home. Then there's a community of believers like ourselves here. And that helps, too. And then even as far as a nation goes, which is rare, that a whole nation has decided to do this. We see Israel doing that. We see some similarities in the United States and some other uh, nations throughout history and throughout the world that have made these calls of faith, these decisions. Um, and it helps when the whole society decides to live that way. Now, it can also conceal a lot of things, too. It can also be a superficial relationship because I'm only not doing what you tell me not to do because I don't want to get busted. That's not a relationship with God at all. That's just I don't want to get caught, and I want to make it the easiest life I can for myself. But that's there are some good results of that. I don't, I don't do these things because the whole world has decided that that's illegal. Oh. And that's another thing we need to keep in mind. Just because something gets made legal doesn't make it moral. I think that's very important to understand. Um, sometimes we think, well, there's, not, there's nothing illegal about that. Well, yeah, there's a lot of things that are legal that we're not supposed to do as Christians. So um, we need to go off of God's morality and not off of the world's lawlessness or whatever you want to call it. So that's where they are. They begin to stand up in their place. They begin to read for a very long time God's word. They're hearing it. They're ready for it. They're hungry for it. It wasn't a long day for them. Oh my goodness, is he ever going to stop reading? You know, when is this over? Nobody's checking their, well, they didn't have watches. Nobody's checking their sundials. I'm kidding. Flintstones reference, you know. <laughs> Nobody, <laughs> the young people went, Flintstones? What are you talking about? <laughs> Sorry, it's an old cartoon. <laughs> there, nobody's worried about the time that they're wasting. or, or get, They want this, and they are hungry for it because they're ready. They're ready to get right with God. So verse 4, then, Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, uh, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shana. Uh, Shan and I uh, stood on the stairs of the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, different guy, uh, Hashabani, different guy, uh, Sherebiah, Hadijah, Hodijah, whatever, uh, Shabaniah, and Patha. <laughs> Pathahiah, they said. Okay, now, the reason I read that, because you've got a group of guys over here, and you've got a group of guys over here. What they're doing is they're actually redoing Deuteronomy 27. And if you don't know what that is, um, when the nation of Israel first came into the land and were first walking with the Lord, half of the Levites would stand on Mount Gerizim, and the other half on Mount Ebal. And the folks on Mount Gerizim would say, here's the blessing if you follow God. And then the other guys would shout out, here's what happens if you don't follow God. And the people were going, listening to it like this. They're in the valley. The Levites are shouting back and forth. The blessing of following God, the curse of being rebellious, rebellious against the Lord. And so they're kind of redoing that in a, like a mini version. They're back and forth. Um, and so they begin to shout off the blessings and, and go back and forth like this. And the people are hearing it and receiving it. Um, and it's very important that they're doing this. They're, 
They're going back to their roots. They're going back to where they were supposed to be. He says this. This is the first thing they shout. Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heavens of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. That's a good place to start. All creation is God's and it comes from God. And we have to believe that and know that. They're stating it. We understand there are no other gods. Although we've worshiped other gods, we are now in repentance of that and realize there is no other gods. And that the way you have made things and the way you've documented these things in Genesis is true. It's not to be disseminated and torn apart and redone so that it can fit whatever the current model is for the world. We believe you at your word. We trust you. We believe that everything has been made by you and that everything is sustained and preserved by you. That's a great place to start because if you're on that or you're in that place of understanding what God has done for you and that you're living in the very thing he's created, you really don't have any other options as to where you're going to go. It's very difficult. It's like a kid saying, I wish you weren't my parents. There's no other option there. You can divorce your parents now. That's an option. But it doesn't make them not your biological parents anymore. It just means you've legally separated from them. You know. And although we would, you know, the world, there's many people in this world that would love to not be created by God. I refuse to believe it. It doesn't mean that they're not created by God. It just means they divorce themselves from the idea of it. But the fact is, he is their creator, whether they like it or not. He is. And so it doesn't leave you with a lot of options. And it really grounds you. And it helps the person, when you start off in this place, to understand, okay, knowing that about myself and about this creation, that he made it and I'm made in it and I'm made by him and he's my father, whether I like it or not, I, I probably better pay a whole lot more attention to the rest of the things he's ever said. Because he did a pretty good job. I certainly love myself, they would say. I think I look great, you know. So I'm going to trust him with the rest of it. And that's a great place. If you can't start here, then you're going to have a problem with many, many other things. You are the Lord God who chose Abraham, or Abram, and brought him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. They start off with the founding of their faith. It started off with one man. They brought him out of the era of the Chaldeans. He wasn't a believer. God set his love upon Abraham, Abram at the time, changed his name later on as Abram decided to be obedient to God, to Abraham, that huh being the breath of God, bringing that into him, born again, now a believer, father of our faith. And they're recognizing that that's where it all started. God just choosing Abram. You have found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites, to give it to his descendants. You have performed your words, for you are righteous. They acknowledge the fact that the land that they're standing in was somebody else's at one time. God had given it to those people, and now he has given it to the nation of Israel. That's another thing that... How does that translate today to us, to my walk? Why do I care living here, not there, you know? Because it's important to know that the earth is the Lord's. 
and everybody on it is a tenant or a renter, and anybody can be moved out or moved in. It happens all the time. It has happened throughout history. It probably won't stop happening. But as a people group decides to follow the Lord and be obedient to him, he can bless them, he can watch out for them, he can guard them. When they stop doing that, he may move them out and move somebody in who's more willing. That's always a possibility. He's done it here. Now, honestly, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites, they didn't own it their whole lives either. There's another group before them. and It just is, it's moves like that. Israel, when they were disobedient, and they're acknowledging that, we did have this land. We were given this land from them, but we also got taken to Babylon because of our disobedience. Now he's brought us back to that land because he said it's perpetually yours. But he, could, he did and could and will and has moved them out and moved them back in again based off of their desire to follow him. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself as it is this day, and you divided the sea before them. This is the Red Sea crossing. So that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and their persecutors you threw into the deep, not the shallow as a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. I I underlined that part. There is always guidance for us. God has always given us a light in a way that nobody is without directions. I sometimes panic when my Google Maps doesn't work. You know, to, to go find a Rand McNally and to look up where you're supposed to go and actually read road signs and hold the book and, okay, it's coming up in about, and to get your key out, that's about four miles away. And I need to, are you kidding? Can you imagine going back to that now? For those of you who have made the jump to smartphones, Greg Durr excluded. Oh, no, you did make the jump, didn't you? Okay. <laughs> The old oak tree, the old, there were always ways to find your way there. and it's, uh, God spiritually has always provided us that direction. It doesn't matter how lost I get, how far away from him I get, how far off track, or he can always recalculate and get us back to where we need to go. There's always those directions. There's always a way back. As long as I'm still breathing and living and walking with him, there's always a way back to where you need to go. And I hope you hear that this morning, because some are struggling with very deep, dark issues. Some probably wonder, but everybody thinks I'm a great Christian, but deep inside I, I have problems. I have very serious things that I have to get over and get, over, get past and, well, repent of maybe even. Not just things that are thrust upon you, but things you thrusted upon yourself. There's always a way back to God. God has always given us a way back to him. There's always a pillar of fire. It doesn't matter whether it's day or night. He's always got his beacon. It's right over here. It's right over here. It's right over here. The only decision we have to make is to whether we want to follow those directions or not to go back. Many people try to stay on the road of sin that they're on and try to ask God to bless them in that road or on that road. Just help me on my current path. 
That path doesn't take you anywhere. It only leads to death and destruction. You have to get off this path and onto the right one. It isn't as simple as finding a road that takes 15 more minutes or so, or this is a little longer of a trip. Like That road doesn't go where you want to go. You have to get back on the path. So you do have to do a U-turn. You have to turn completely around and get back on that road that you were on and follow it. And so they're acknowledging that. You've always provided guidance. You've always provided us a direction. You've always been willing to lead us if we're willing to follow. Verse 13, you came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath that commanded and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger. You brought them water out of the rock for their thirst. You told them to go in to possess the land which you had sworn to give them. We understand that your law is good. All of it was good. All of it was a blessing. I mean, it's a group of people that's turning into a society. It's like, we don't even know what to do. We don't have a government. There is no government. We got Moses, you know, and we follow him. And we got a bunch of guys over here that say we're supposed to go back to Egypt. And we got a bunch of guys over here that say we're supposed to keep walking. When we got to this mountain, you brought down the truth to us. This is how I want you as a group of people to live and to breathe and to walk. And we're very thankful for that. We understand there are good commandments, good statutes that kept us. The law kept people. It was always a tutor to bring them to the need of Jesus Christ. It was a a place of this is what I expect from you. This is who I am as God. And here's what I do as a king. And here's how my kingdom looks. That's all the law really was. And they're thankful for it. Verse 16 tells us, now that we acknowledge the fact that everything you did was great, which means somewhere along the line, they began to pick apart the precepts, the law, and all those good things, those commandments that God gave them, and said, I don't think about that one, and that one I don't think really matters, and that one was cultural, and that one was for a different time, and that one was... And that's how they got into trouble. They began to manufacture their own law a law that was man-made, governed by man. This is what man's kingdom looks like. This is what a kingdom looks like when it's self-governed by the human beings and not the creator that made them. There is no moral authority. I am the moral authority. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves in Babylon, worshiping all these other gods before that, before being taken to Babylon, in a place of horror, misery, and they're acknowledging that. Verse 16, but they and our fathers acted proudly. They hardened their necks. They did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks, and in the rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. Let's go back to bondage. Let's go back to our imprisonment that we were set free from. That is the key. Progressive Christianity is a thing. Maybe you didn't know it, but it's a thing. Progressive Christianity. And it's more about, there's eight tenets to the faith. It's more about just love and acceptance of all religions and all people and all lifestyles. It's a place of love. They call it that. It's actually a place, 
and I know this is a harsh thing to say, but it's a place of cowardice is what it is. Um, it's exactly what we're reading here right now. We're in that place now as a church, as a nation, where progressive Christianity is creeping in. Probably the 70% of the churches in town have progressive. And I don't mean that point that way. It could very well happen here if we're not careful. And we don't get our minds right. But if we've been set free from bondage, we must always remember the bondage part and what it was that we were in bondage to. Because if Christ came to set us free, and now all of a sudden those things that he set us free from, aren't things to be set free from, things to embrace, things to be encouraged, things to accept, and that's considered love. That is like choosing for ourselves someone to take us back to the bondage. The very thing that God set us free from, we find ourselves stepping into the cell, closing the door, (sighs) home. Very dangerous. Progressive Christianity is... Just a new name for something that's always taken place in the church. And that's just a tolerance for sin. A Corinthian church would have been considered in some ways a progressive Christianity in the acceptance of certain lifestyles and sin. That's why Paul had to write to them that whole list of people. You were these things, but you've been set free. You're a new creature in Christ. You're a new creation in Christ. You're not those things anymore. Those are the things you were set free from. I encourage you to read that list. As a a believer in Jesus Christ, read that list that Paul writes to the Corinthian church. These are the things you've been set free from. That means, first of all, you can be set free from them. You're not automatically those things which the world will tell you it's in your DNA to be that. That's not true. That's counter-Christ. It's counter-God. It's just, it's absolutely unbiblical. It keeps people where the world wants them. Of course The world wants them stuck there. No, you can be set free from those. You have been set free from those. You need to walk away from those. You need to not return to those things. Read that list. Every time you watch the news or every time you hear that progressive lingo coming your way and that you feel that indoctrination coming, read that list. You remind yourself, no, no matter how hard it gets out there, I believe God's word I don't believe what they're telling me because they are coming from a different place. They are coming from a worldly standpoint. They are coming from a world that would prefer not to have religion at all because they believe religion is the problem. There are many religions that are a problem, but Christianity isn't one of them. Anywhere Christianity is embraced in its biblical form anyway, it's beautiful. It's an amazing thing whenever it becomes something other than what God intended it to be, which it has in the history of the church many times. That's still, that's the worldly influence coming into the church and corrupting it. You talk about things that we're embarrassed about in church history. Those things to be embarrassed about in church history are the world creeping into the church and not letting it be what God intended it to be. All those atrocities, all those horrible things are from embracing parts of the world and bringing them into the church. So they acknowledge that. We know what you've given us is good. We know what our fathers did and us were bad. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Even through all of that, we acknowledge the fact that you never left us, forsake us forsaken us. There was always a pillar of fire, a pillar of smoke, in a sense, 
a way back, and you never left us. This is the Old Testament God. He's not someone to be afraid of. Well, I'm a New Testament Christian. I'm not sure about that Old Testament God. He seems awfully rough. He's awfully rough because there was no propitiation for your sins. There was no Christ. There was no blood sacrifice. We're celebrating communion this morning. There was no moment to point to where the forgiveness of the world was given for their sins. If they've accepted Christ, you have forgiveness for all of your sins. There is no sacrifice to be made. There is no wrath to come. Christ has saved us from that. So when they write about this, he's the same God without the mechanism by which he can forgive. He sacrifices the only way. You've got to wait till Christ. You've got to be in hope, hopes of the Messiah. Even when they made a molded calf for themselves, they're remembering some of the fine points. Oh, remember that time we made that molded calf and said, this is your God that brought you out of Egypt? Oh, that was dumb. And worked great provocations, yet... In your manifold mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor a pillar of fire by night to show them light in the way that they should go. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Even in the midst of them worshiping this calf, you were still being faithful to do what a loving God would do. I continually fed you, I continually watered you, I continually gave you direction, even when you thought the calf, even when you turned your eyes from me to the calf, I was still doing it. And they acknowledged that. These are great moments for them. This is great moments for us to go through. Oh, even if it's a washing of the feet kind of moment with the Lord, where you're kind of going over the past five years, maybe you've been in a steady decline in your life. And you have that moment where, like, I need to get back to you. I remember when I was born again, baptized, walking with you. I was on fire for you. I loved your word. I walked, And then I don't know what happened. And you begin to think about what happened. And you go through the process and the steps you took to walk away from God. And even as I remember all those times, that hindsight, I can see you in every thing of my life. I can see you doing the still faithful for me, to me, for me. That's what they're doing. There's always a way forward with God. Always a way forward with God. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. They never ran out of shoes in 40 years. They didn't make new shoes. They just wore the same old shoes. Well, a pair of those shoes. Moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts. So they took possession of the land of Sion, the land of the king of Hezbon, the land of Og, king of Bashan. You also multiplied their children and the stars of heaven and brought them into the land which you told their fathers to go in and possess. So the people went in and possessed the land. You subdued, subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with, the, with their kings and the people of the land. They might do with them as they wished. And they took strong cities and rich land. And possessed houses full of all goods, cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate, were filled, and grew fat, and delighted themselves in your great goodness. We remember just moving in, you know, a furnished apartment, basically, a furnished house. And to plant fruit trees, there they were. Ever buy a fruit tree? Oh, it's a miserable experience. Because you know you got five years before it's going to bear any fruit. Or if it does, you know, there's just this process. 
you go to Schweitzer Orchard down in St. Joseph and you go pick, you're like, oh, I want to get a fruit tree of my own. Those have been there for 50 years, you know, kind of thing. No wonder they're just hanging there on the ground. That's what they moved into. They move into this, oh, my, there's an orchard. I mean, not like a brand new orchard with a twig. That's what mine looks like right now. But this, it's like Schweitzer Orchard here. This is amazing, you know. We remember how you just, without earning it, without really working for it, you just moved into this. We moved right in. No cisterns that we had to dig. They're just built. I mean, ah, oh. made in the shade, we would say. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself. And they worked great provocations, even in the midst of all that blessing. And that's just a lesson for us, I guess. No matter how much you're blessed, it doesn't going to make you any closer to God. In fact, a lot of times you'll just take it for granted. If you have that heart where you have a tendency to be rebellious against God, more stuff in your life or more uh, provision isn't going to make you closer, isn't going to make you believe anymore. It's just going to make, well, it'll just bring out new attributes that you didn't think you had, which is what it does for them. But God is not at fault, is what they're saying. You in no way, God, have done anything deserving of what we've done for you. Our lack of worship or disobedience to you, they're just acknowledging the fact that we know it is us. You know how the old... Dear John letter, it's not you, it's me, kind of thing. Mm-mm. This, is, this is the letter. No, we, we truly believe that it's us. We know we did it. Therefore you delivered them into the hand, verse 27, therefore you delivered them into the hand of their enemies who oppressed them. And in the time of their trouble, when they cried to you, you heard from heaven according to your abundant mercies. You gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of, of their enemies. I'm sorry I broke up with you. I mean, I thought he was a great guy. I'm sorry I left you. He was so great, but he beats me every day. And come back. Come back home. Come back to where you belong. Come back to safety. Come back to provision. Come back to love. I don't know whatever attracted you to him, but you're welcome back. There's forgiveness. There's grace. There's mercy. I want this restored. That's our God. Therefore, you delivered them into the hand of their enemies who oppressed them. You let them have what they wanted. But after they had rest, oh, it's so good to be back home. They again did evil before you. Therefore, you left them in the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. And when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies and testified against them. This is not just a one-time thing. It was back and forth and back and forth. You see how he made that? Started off, he, he does that on purpose. This is how Jewish people write. Big time events. See how so gracious. See how evil we were. See how gracious. See how evil we were. Just ad nauseum. You know, this went on forever. We know. <laughs> we know that you might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly and did not heed your command commandments, but sinned against your judgments. Which, if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders and stiffened their necks and would not hear. Yet for many years you had patience with them, and testified against them by your spirit and your prophets, yet they would not listen. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them, for you are God, gracious and merciful. 
We do go through bad times of our own making many times through our own rebellion, but we're still there. The only thing that's supposed to be destroyed in that place of rebellion as God lets us go in the direction we demand him let us go is the destruction of our flesh. That's what's supposed to take place out there. That's what Paul writes to the Corinthians. Let this guy go, kick him out, but not for the destruction of his soul, but for the destruction of his flesh. And then, of course, 2 Corinthians, he says, now bring him back, lest to be swallowed up with too much sorrow. The flesh is destroyed. He's certainly repentant. Bring him back. Like I do, God would say. Now, therefore, O God, the great and the mighty and awesome God, who keep covenant and mercy, do not let all your troubles seem small before you. Do not let all the troubles seem small before you that has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and on all your people. From the days of the kings of Assyria until this day, however, you are just in all that has befallen us. We're, we're asking to come back. We're asking for that. Please don't think of it as a small thing. We've learned our lesson. We know we deserved it, is what he's trying to get at. I think that's one of our biggest dangers is when we don't let all of the flesh die in those situations. Sometimes it's like, it's like pulling a, a weed and you just don't get the root, you know. It looks great, and it's going to be suppressed for a while, but if that root's still there, it's coming back. It really is. And so unless God gets the root of sin out of our life, unless he pulls that thing completely up, and we get saved from it too soon, and it's not completely destroyed, it's a bad place. And that's what's happened here. We know that. You, you've, everything that's happened to us, you've dealt faithfully, and we've done wickedly, he says at the end of verse 33. Neither our kings, nor our princes, our priests, our fathers have kept your law. We know that. Nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies, with which you testified against them. And they have not served you in their kingdom. Or in the, and that's the key word, served. And in the many good things that you have given them, or that you gave them. Or in the large and rich land in which you set before them. Nor did they turn from their wicked works. Here we are servants today. Now he's switching we didn't serve your kingdom, but here we are today, servants, and look who's, who they serve. The land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty, here we are, servants in it. We're not supposed to be. They're not talking about servants of God. He's going to explain to us, and it yields much increase to kings you have set over us because of our sins. Also, they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle. At their pleasure, and we are in great distress. We could have served you. Cisterns already made, orchards already in full bloom, ready to go. I mean, olive trees and vineyards, and hey, this is great. And if we just serve God, it just stays like this. And we just give him that 10% or whatever, acknowledging the fact that he gave it to us and just living off the fat of the land. This is great. But they didn't. They rebelled against him, and all of a sudden now people, you think my 10% tax was bad? That's what they called it. You think I'm taking too much from you in the sense that I'm just making you acknowledge the fact that I'm the provider? How about I, how about I step back and let men rule over you for a while, and we'll see what they do? Boy, are we feeling that today, aren't we? I mean, you couldn't drive a point home harder. I mean, I've, I hit on this political stuff probably more often, but it's just so hard to ignore 
When we were following God and obeying God and living for God and loved God, man, we just exploded in prosperity. Exploded. Nothing to be guilty of. of, Nothing to be embarrassed of. This came because of a blessing from God because our our wholehearted, we give you our our nation. We give it to you. We're we're a people that are going to follow you. We're going to, we did this right here. And slowly but surely, we've been removing him and taking him out and saying he costs too much. It's too much. And we are reaping the benefits of it. I don't even own my own home ever. Ever. I serve and I work. You know, I went through my commission one time with some, as a realtor, they're like, you must make a lot of money. Well, let me explain it to you. That 6%, I don't get 6%. That 6% gets divided up 3% and 3% between broker and broker. Then the broker split that 3% between broker and realtor. So now I'm down to 1.5%, which is pretty good. Except that the government, because you're self-employed, takes 20 to 25% of that at the end of the year. Now how does it look? You know? (laughs) It's right there. What? Death tax. You can't even pass it on to your kids without paying a premium of 40 to 45% back on stuff you've already been taxed on. But you aren't really getting taxed. It's your offspring that are getting taxed. It's not you getting double taxed. It's just a brand new shiny tax for them, you know? I'm not trying to get bitter or political here, but you begin to understand what they're saying. We could have served you. We chose not to serve you, and now we serve people. And boy, people, they take a whole lot more. Now I'm a slave to them, and they're recognizing that. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders and our Levites and our priests, we seal it. And then next week we'll go through, well, I won't read all the names to you, but it gives the names of everybody that sealed it. We are making a promise and and sealing this letter to you. We will follow you from here on out. That's a good thing. All right, we're going to have the communion that we didn't have last week because I forgot to order communion cups. So I take full credit for that. But I got to go long last week, so there was a blessing for all of you in that. I got to keep going. And so this is a good segue for us, actually, as we go through this, and maybe you've had a conversation with the Lord in your heart throughout the teaching that, yeah, I need to get back, or need to get closer, or need to acknowledge. Thank you, Mick. This, this is not the way back. This is a reminder that the way back has been made, okay? Um, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, they were eating the Passover meal, in a sense, and they took the bread and broke it. He did. Handed it out to the disciples, and I want you to take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this as often as you do this. Do this in remembrance of me. Whenever you have this bread, remember that my body will be, and that's the next day, will be broken for you. And that's so that yours isn't broken. I'm doing this for your deliverance, for your being set free from sin. My body will be broken. On the same night, he took the cup that they were all drinking from, and he passed it around and gave it for all to drink. Says, "Taken, drink. This is the blood of my new covenant in this cup. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. The blood that's going to be shed the very next day was the blood that should have should have been yours, should have been mine, but wasn't. It was his. He says, I want you to do that. I am, Jesus says, the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father but by me. And that's what we're eating and drinking this morning, acknowledging the fact that he is the way. The only way back to God is through the forgiveness of sins that Jesus provides at the cross. There is no other way. There are no other religions. There are no other paths. All roads don't lead to God. In fact, all other roads other than Christ lead to hell. And when you drink and eat this, you acknowledge that before him. You acknowledge just what was said today in this reading, that there are no other gods that we live in his creation, that we're a part of his creation, and that he is to be honored, respected, and worshiped and loved because he loved us. We also, in this moment, recognize how merciful and gracious he's been to us because although there was nothing we could do to earn the cross, he came and died for us anyway. We weren't deserving of forgiveness. We weren't deserving of any of the grace and mercy. That's the definition of those two things. Grace is receiving something you didn't deserve. Mercy is not receiving something you did deserve. We got both of those from the Lord, and we acknowledge that this morning in this moment. But there's also to be a celebration here, as long as we're mourning and thinking about how small we are and how great he is. He also wants us to celebrate too, because we are his forever. We are forgiven forever. He has a home waiting for us. He's going to come and take us there. We will be a part of his kingdom I mean, we are, but he will establish and remove all sin and remove all evil and put it where it's in its place, and we get to be with him forever. And and this is the acknowledgement of that. I have become a citizen of heaven. Jesus is my king. I'm a part of his administration in a sense. I'm a part of his kingdom. I'm a citizen, and I'm very thankful for that, and we can't wait for him to return. It's all that's wrapped up in what we're doing here. So we'll give it a few minutes here just to think about it. I'm, I'm actually early. And then we'll close and, and, uh, with prayer and, and, and have this together. Lord, we thank you for this bread. Thank you for what it represents. It's symbolic of your broken body 2,000 plus years ago. We're very thankful for that. We do this in remembrance of you. Your love for us, your sacrifice, um, and that you are the way. Lord, as we hold this cup in our hands, we are reminded of your blood that was shed for the remission of our sins, for the forgiveness of our sins. As far as the east is from the west, our sins are forgiven. Through this moment that happened again, at one point in time, once for all, we have a way back to you or a way forward with you always in our lives. And if we're here this morning and we're sitting in your presence, you welcome us back through repentance, through acknowledgement of who you are, through that just turning around, making that U-turn and getting back on the path that you've set, the only way that we're supposed to walk in. We return to that this morning or continue on in that path. So we thank you for that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We pray that you bless these folks as they go today. We pray that they'd have a wonderful weekend, um, a great time with their family, a great time with you. 
many opportunities this week to share your love with those around us, to be gracious, to be merciful. But not just that. We also want to tell the truth. We want people to know the truth that they might be set free also. So we look for those and watch for those and ask for those opportunities to, with our mouths and with our hearts, share what we know, what we have in you with those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.